0: Welcome to episode 109 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. We've got Kevin Mullins on here today. Kevin's going to talk with us about whether or not trainers need to spend time working in a commercial gym to gain experience. We're going to get into a discussion about program design, which we never talk about on the podcast what matters, what doesn't, and Kevin's love of group training and why he feels there's a great opportunity there. It's great for clients, great for coaches.
1: Shut up and sit down.
0: Hi, hey everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Uh, we always do this and forget to differentiate our voices. I think regular listeners by now probably know. Uh, I'm Andrew Coates. Come I on. i supposed to speak. I'm Dean. Spoke- I'm Dean. Okay. That's Dean. That's always a weird way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you just put him on the spot. Uh, but yeah. So if you're not used to our voices, then, and I, it, I think over the, Air without seeing who you're who's talking sometimes you just don't really get a sense of who's who I to other podcasts and sometimes you can't easily differentiate the hosts or associate the names but you can hear the personality so anyway but far more important than us because we're always here is uh, Kevin Mullins we've got him on air today he's smiling on a, a TV screen that you guys won't get to see so when we we're preparing for Kevin um, I was excited to draw upon he's got a really extensive and very professional experience um, that he's had in the industry so that's going to be fun. He's the Director of Product Development and Education for the St. James in Springfield, Virginia. I guess I'll let you explain a little bit more about that. And uh, he's worked in a lot of roles not limited to personal training and group exercise. And he's written for a number of major fitness publications. Um, he's published his own book, uh, Day by Day, The Personal Trainer's Blueprint to Achieving Ultimate Success. Sorry, I'm reading it off. I didn't want to fuck it up. But uh, most importantly, welcome to you. <laughs> Thanks, guys.
2: It's, it's also to be on as a fan of the Fitness Devil podcast for quite some time. Uh, I feel like this is a monumental moment. Like people remember JFK, <laughs> Pearl Harbor, <laughs> and uh, getting on the Fitness Devil podcast. So thanks, guys. Uh, and just to cover that up, uh, the, the St. James is an up-and-coming uh, family, sports, wellness complex. We have everything from a health club to a full-size FIFA field. Uh, full-size Olympic pool, two hockey rinks or figure skating, depending on your sport. So uh, the whole brand is designed around giving families, active families, a place where mom and dad can get their workouts in, you know, kids are in lacrosse or dancing or whatever it is. Uh, So we're a 500,000 square foot facility in Virginia uh, with other locations coming online. So they brought me in. Uh, to take my experience in the fitness industry and as a writer, and really streamline when we develop products, whether it's a lacrosse program or upgrading our personal training, uh, streamlining those things so that it, it looks good to the customer and works on the back end.
1: That's kind of cool, just because like uh, we had this talk with Sam Pogue, but there's there's more work in this industry than just training. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> And
2: I would argue that's the advice I give to young trainers more than anything else is don't think you just have to do sessions. Don't think that the only way you can make money with your passion and your knowledge is to show up at a gym and give hour after hour. Sure, that's the core of it and we all got to pay our dues. But eventually you start proving certain things. And in my case, I've always kind of felt like a little bit of a fitness imposter anyway. I love training. I work out. I'm in rather good shape. But I'm not the guy who, if I don't get my workout in, at 8 p.m., I'm knocking down the walls if I've had a good intellectual day. So I've always come to the industry from a slightly more intellectual perspective. And then training has obviously been uh, a sanctuary for me. So, you know, being in this role, I don't necessarily get the same contact hours with clients or at the gym floor, but it's
0: still good work. Well, this actually leads into the first thing that we sort of slated to talk about and I'll sort of go through it uh... You know, we've had the emergence of Instagram and, and more online stuff, more boutique options for trainers. Uh, so, there's long been an argument that trainers need to spend time working in a commercial gym setting. First parties, does that argument still remain valid today? Or, and this is, you just mentioned Nick Tumanello off air before, and this is something Nick and uh, we talked about on his episode a while back. Are we guilty of being gatekeepers? to a new generation because it's the way that it was done before, the way that we did it? And are we now saying to the new generation traders, well, you have to do this as well. So open up to your thoughts.
2: I'm going, to actually, I'm going to answer it backwards, so I'll address that second question first. So uh, I definitely agree there's some level of gatekeeping, right? And that happens in every, every industry. Being in the D.C. area, I've trained a lot of doctors, lawyers, politicians, uh, and there is definitely in every single industry this sort of, well, this is how we did it so suck it up right law is the perfect exa- perfect example where it's like well when i was in my 20s i billed 2000 da- hours a year and i made money and ate pizza and suffered right so it's like it's this it's this culture that is uh brought on generation after generation so yes i think some of us trainers are at this place where we think well i put my hours in and you should too however the a- the answer And the question are still very valid because nothing will ever replace cold, hard experience. And I would argue that the best experience you can get is being in a commercial gym, especially in those younger years where you're training all different body types, all different goal sets, all different uh, psychological orientations. Right. I think. I think it actually would harm a young trainer to end up at a badass place like Cressy. And I'm not saying anything about them, but if I'm brand new to the industry and all I know are high performers and people who get after it, the first time I come across a client who's like, "Can we just just do a little bit and then I <laughs> leave?" right? Because that's personal training is ultimately occasionally having uh, a client where you're like, look, we're going to do 20 minutes of exercise and you're going to talk for 40 minutes, but they love it, you know, in a way you take on the therapist role. And so to get back to the core point, it's, it is still valid because you have to get your experience somewhere. And if you can latch on, like I was fortunate to be with Sports Club LA, and then they were bought out by Equinox. I put in a lot of hours, tens of thousands of hours, leading into 20,000 total hours of experience between training, group fitness, and master instruction to where Where else was I going to get that level of density and just training clients from 5
0: a.m. to 9 p.m., day in and day out for eight years. That's insane. In fact, like I haven't really calculated the math recently, but in the space of about nine years, I think I'm somewhere... Shit, I'm well north of 10,000 hours, but yeah. and I, I'm a prolific coach in terms of like hours on the floor of clients, but that's an extreme numbers. So Yeah. I
2: mean, and there are people who've done significantly more than me. I, I've known trainers in our region who've done 300, 350 sessions in a given month. Um, you know, obviously there comes a point where you have to question the quality, like how attentive are you actually? But um, for me, I was in that grind season where in my mid-20s, I was single. Um, I just wanted to work. I enjoyed seeing those paychecks when when working at a place like Equinox, you get paid fairly well. I know with Tony Gentlecore's episode, you guys talked about John Goodman's study on how much trainers are earning. Like I, I'm fortunate to say that I'm on that upper end of the spectrum because of the city that I, I'm in, Washington BC especially this zip code is is one of the wealthier areas of the nation and so people are affording a higher price point and then when you start doing 150 sessions at that price point it adds up quick and so then when you see that hit your direct deposit you're like well I can't slow down now
0: <laughs> that's that is something I definitely experienced too is you get used to making a certain level and it's it's never quite enough yeah and yeah, the company I was with for a really long time, uh, they actually paid well by industry standards. Now, being an independent contractor uh, out of the Evolve Strength uh, gyms, yeah. it's even better. But you do get used to that sort of thing, and God, even if you feel like, oh, that quieter month, like 5%, like slower, whatever, you start to mentally freak out a little bit, which is totally ridiculous yeah i I totally understand that mindset
1: he says that but he like freaks out every month he like literally thinks his business is collapsing (laughs) every month (laughs) that's
2: that's not true but But, you know part of that is a sign of caring right so one of my favorite words in angus language is stewardship which is just to care right so it's like you are a steward of your business and so you notice those deviations how many trainers out there aren't taking analysis to it and they're worried about putting up the next Instagram post or they're worried about how many followers did I gain today when it's like, no, how many sessions did you train today? Because that's really what's going to pay your bills.
0: This actually brings up a point. I've had a lot of conversations with people in person about, uh, I don't know if you've read the uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb book. Oh God. What am I the,
1: the what uh, it? it's not happy, fragile. anti-fragile. Yeah, not anti-fragile. Fragile, yeah, anti-fragile. Yeah.
0: Jesus, slipped my mind for a sec. And he talks about, you know, the illusion of security and stability with a traditional salary job where, you know, oh, you're guaranteed. And I know a lot of trainers will jump out of the industry at some point because they're looking for something guaranteed. Mm -hmm. But I agree with what the book says, that we're actually the ones who are more robust and anti-fragile in that if we notice that something, our, our business is dipping off by a little bit, we can do a lot of things to work at it too compensate for it, we can shift gears a lot, we can work harder, we can promote ourselves and market. So if we can't really, outside of some extreme situations like your gym burning down, you can't lose all of your income in one shot, the way a layoff can yeah. happen to someone who has that illusion of security. So I think, especially for trainers who feel stressed about that particular point. You have an enormous amount of control over your outcome just by the efforts you put into it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably the type of person who thinks that way. Mm -hmm. And I believe that this is something you can do for a very, very long time. But any business that you own, any chiropractic clinic, anybody who owns anything, a gym, is someone who still has to work at their business month over month, year over year in order to sustain and grow that business. It's not an automatic thing. So. Getting stressed out because, oh, you're worried about where the next client's going to come from. Uh, guess what? Anybody who's involved in business feels that way. And if you have a salary job with a larger business, well, how many large famous companies have imploded? Uh, got Blockbuster, Enron, Kodak, and there's a much, much circuit city. I think this is like the second time you a Blockbuster. No, I, gotta I, that, though, I, man, I got to say, though, man, I got nostalgic real quick I know. I was like, no. Blockbuster. <laughs> Right? And anybody who was, you know, enjoying their corporate salary with any of these companies just, you know, within the the last months before some of these companies imploded, in some cases like Enron, it was kind of overnight or Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, whereas a company like Blockbuster was in decline for a long period of time. But the lesson remains the same is your salary, your six figure salary goes to zero rather instantly. Mm -hmm. And the case of, you know, people in companies like Enron. Uh, there's no severance. Do you, do you think Blockbuster, like, and this is like a real question because I think it ties in.
1: You think that they knew the landscape enough? No shit's gonna collapse, and maybe made <laughs> alterations to their plan because, like, that's what you should do as a trainer. Not to say that like training's gonna collapse, but Instagram's here and there's money to yeah. be made. Like, like what, what, at what point do you kind of like, okay, this shit's real? Like, I think Blockbuster kind of... didn't take Netflix seriously,
2: right? So here oh, comes yeah, Netflix. Right.
1: Oh, no, they just... don't take
0: Instagram seriously. Like a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Instagram is actually part of the reason why are the same progression towards digital photography, why Kodak went under because yeah. he, Kodak's gone. Yeah.
1: I don't <laughs> watch the news. Kodak film.
0: But can <laughs> we,
2: can we highlight something here though? Because this is a big belief of mine is you, we're having this conversation. We left the fitness industry. We're talking about the failures of other large organizations. I think it's that sort of well-rounded knowledge too that lends itself to being a better trainer. Like, if all you know is how to teach a perfect push up or how to coach a perfect squat, like, that's cool. But this sort of being able to step out of your industry and see that, you know, we're a relatively young industry, 40, 45 years old. When we, you know, obviously we have pictures of people working out in the 1800s, but as an industry that is highly profitable, it's really only about 40 years old. And so it is. It is behooves you when you're working in personal training or in fitness as a, as an industry to look at other industries and see where they miss the evolution, where uh, in the case of Enron, where people were skeezy and, and scammy and got them in legal trouble, um, or you, you could even look to the successes. One of the things I always reference is Uh, like the music festival industry, right? You can convince hundreds of thousands of people to descend upon a field to, you know, granted there's some altered states there, but you're effectively telling people to pack in like sardines and pay a premium for it just to hear their favorite music that they can listen to on Spotify or on YouTube, right? And they can even watch videos of them after the fact. I actually went to Tomorrowland this year. It was a lifelong goal of mine to just like in, check it out. What, in uh, Belgium? In Belgium, yeah.
0: One of my clients was there. So was it week one or week two? Week one, it was. you and my client even, were in at Tomorrowland at the same
1: time. He doesn't That's even awesome. remember it. He was, he was altered. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, there there are definitely things done there. I lived in a tent. I showered with wet wipes. Um, <laughs> no, they had real showers, but there was like the wet wipe shower. And then when, when it died down and the line wasn't insane, then you'd go shower for real. But nonetheless, I, I just bring up that reference because there is an industry driving people into flow state, right? Getting these people into these places of euphoria and togetherness and whatnot. And as a trainer, one of our goals or any fitness business is to, how can you be so entertaining to the point of addictive? And that's how you have that return business. Well, on one hand, it's delivering results. Well, on the other hand, it's being a person, being an actual human on the other end instead of a machine. And then there's also just having certain flares or you know, pizzazz, if you will, that keeps people interested and makes you marketable across the broad scope.
0: There's a couple of business concepts that you basically said in there that I'll sort of grab onto a little bit. The first one is being aware of the potential for your industry to be disrupted, which is something I've long been fascinated about. When we look at the personal training industry, I know we've had this conversation with numerous guests, where the interpersonal relationship, you just talked about that, that'll never go away. There are probably people, as we speak, trying to design a perfect App, or it may eventually get to the point where we get into artificial intelligence. Uh, certainly, other technological aids for coaches, and I know online training has grown a lot. So those things are theoretically threats to our coaching business, but mm-hmm. I tend to look at them as opportunities that might actually help us become better coaches. But you still got to be aware of this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that, oh, being a pen and paper book trainer, like Chad Landers is someone who talks about this. He still has all the log books over his entire career. He's been doing it for 27 years. So he's just got me stacks and stacks of books. I use a tablet. I have it all online now. But that stuff is, something like Chad will never go out of style because he's, I don't think there's anybody better at relationships with their clients and long-term focus on that. And that will cut through any disruption, but we still want to be very aware of how our industry is going to change not just the next four or five years, but in the next 15, 20 and beyond. And then the second thing uh, that sort of falls in there is the concept of blue ocean thinking. So if if anybody doesn't know blue ocean versus red ocean business theory, uh, red ocean would be a bloody, saturated industry, traditional industry, whereas blue ocean would be a, a relatively new, pristine sort of place that you've created something. I think a good example is the Apple... iPhone, iPod. We've had cell phones before that, but what they did is they created something new within an existing industry. Starbucks coffee and and the whole Starbucks experience of drinking coffee Mm -hmm. and being able to charge a premium started, it was a blue ocean market when they kind of went into it. And that's why they're the dominant player there. Now other companies are coming in. So instead of just thinking about diving into the traditional space and being competitive with a saturated market, you can, as a trainer, brand yourself in such a way that you're creating a, a slightly new or very new or different experience that no one has seen before or it's not really there in your like town and that can draw people in because it's better than what is already being offered hundred percent, and I think
2: a, a really good fitness industry example is just the rise of boutique studios, right? Yeah. So for years, people, you know, an Equinox, a sports club, a Lifetime. Uh, what is what is the big brand in Canada? I always forget it. Good life. Yeah. Good life's a big so, one. Yeah, and so like they have a spin class, and yeah. sometimes it's good rhythm, sometimes it's performance and metric based, but it's just a it's a hodgepodge. But then you have a place like SoulCycle, which is the mecca for people who they want results, but the results actually begin to matter less than the experience. And you know, I know we're going to talk about group fitness a little bit cause I'm very pro group fitness for the bulk of the population. So I don't want to dive into that yet, but you know, they succeeded because people, the market wanted a more customized specific experience and they gave it to them. right? They nailed it. And so when we're a fitness professional or a fitness brand or a trainer, I think the key, though, is that your differentiator needs to be your personality and presentation and not the fundamentals of exercise, right? I, I, I get perturbed when, you know, a, a younger trainer or someone looking to reinvent the wheel is like, oh, no, I, just, I I discovered a new muscle contraction. I'm like, did you? Tell me all about it. And they're like, yeah, you know, like it's called a reverse eccentric. I was like, so in concentric attraction, you know. And so
1: I'm going to write about it. it
2: yeah you know you look I mean that's effectively what orange theory did, and I'm not throwing them under the bus, but all they did was they took epoch and that sweet spot where you do begin to create oxygen debt, they named it the Orange zone, they trademarked the hell out of it, and they made it so that no other company could claim to put you in the ideal epoch zone. They basically own excess post exercise oxygen consumption, which <laughs> as we as we now know is not necessarily the full picture, right? Some of the recent data has shown it's beneficial, but it's not necessarily the be all end all to metabolic conditioning. But Orange Theory established its brand and gained popularity because they took a core science principle, threw it at their marketing team and said, make it sexy. So they didn't violate science, they didn't make up anything. And all they did was present it in such an attractive, way that the consumers were just like, give me more, give me more. And, and so that's ultimately where our industry at is the blue ocean is not, Oh, I'm a trainer. Oh, I get people fit, right? Like you don't, I, I, am I'm always blown away when a trainer's like, I give, I get people results. I was like, do you not think the other 400,000 people in the industry don't think that like, of course they do the difference is that presentation, a lot of it is your personality. And it's also just packaging things. Like for me, I thrived in my career working with uh, older women, say plus 40 plus 35 population who grew up in the women don't lift weights era. And then instead of packaging it, like, Oh, we're going to bust down the stereotypes. And instead of going right at the throat, I was like, Oh, we're going to work this in. And then I mixed in things that they've you know grown to like and whatnot like i'd deadlift somebody in the beginning do some overhead presses some chops and we'd finish with climbs in the spin studio i'd plug my my phone in drop a couple good tunes on there for them and then have them doing like you know power work on the spin bike where they were the happiest you tricked them yeah
1: (laughs) but (laughs) no but like that's that's like that's a an effort to understand human psychology and then make an experience based on that, which I don't think a lot of people take into account. They're like, yeah, it's fitness. It's like this strength and physiology. It's like, oh no,
0: it's this, not. This is a good place, something you said will be a really good place to pivot into our next question. And you mentioned trainers and kind of, you sort of danced around the idea of like trainers coming along and rediscovering, or sort of discovering some sort of new training principle. And When I think that usually someone gets away from fundamental uh, strength training or program design and does something kooky and different that usually is bullshit. So uh, I'll let Dean actually ask the question.
1: Well, I thought we were going to do Okay. So we're going to talk about program design. and We honestly, we never talk about this. I don't even know how that happened. I did it deliberately. No, but I'm saying, like, we we don't even, you're the guy that's going to talk about program design, so you better fuck about it. Kill it, (laughs) man. But, like, so we talk about all this stuff with training and and, and new shit, but, like, what are your thoughts on the important elements of program design for trainers and what doesn't matter but gets too much attention? Because that happens all the time. So, I want to start by
2: saying that I've long had this belief and I've said it at a couple conferences now. I've written it a few times as well is strength coaches. The traditional CSCSs or, you know, to give Mike Boyle some love, some CFSC, those guys need to spend more time in a commercial gym working with moms over 40 who don't give a crap about their deadlift PR or don't really care about the differences in biomechanics of the front rack versus the back squad and whatnot. And more personal trainers need to get into a room with 10, 12 athletes and realize that they have to think bigger and program appropriately and really get into the nitty gritty of program design. So at the core, Program design is about knowing your audience. We can argue all day about periodization theory and in-season, off-season. We can argue about, you know, oh, five-by-five five delivers this and eight-by-three does this. And I read somebody does 8 by eights. Oh, my God. And, you know, we can get into the nitty-gritty, but ultimately, program design starts with who is the person you're training and what are their goals? And that's obvious, but so many trainers... Are in this rush to show off their knowledge? Like, look at my tools. They're the they're the guy with the trench coat who's got all the stuff under the trench coat. And he's like, "What do you want?" And so, uh, he's,
1: instead he's of, of <laughs> instead of <laughs> something under Sorry, that trench coat, what, was, what was else there? is under the trench coat?
2: <laughs> no, but like if if I could be. Uh, Will Smith from Men in Black, I guess Chris Hemsworth now, and I could have that little buzzer thing. I would get in front of the entire world and I would tell people that deadlifts make you leaner than six hours of cardio and that you need to lift weights heavy and moderate and light and you got to do it all, right? I would just drop the Bible of training on the population and then every new client that comes in wouldn't have these weird notions that you have to work around. But the fact of the matter is... I'm not men in black. I can't blank their mind and start them over. So what I have to do when I design a program is say, okay, this client loves going to SoulCycle. I need to work around that. Who am I? Nobody named me God or King. So I'm not going to tell them you need to stop that. SoulCycle's is a joke. It doesn't have periodized theory. You're not loading your glutes enough. You're putting stress across your anterior shoulder girdle. All things that are true. They don't care they like going there they like losing themselves on the bike they like the community they have they love their instructor and replace soul cycle with yoga or zumba for god's sakes and it's like okay this is what you do or i'm a runner i when i was younger i was guilty of definitely trying to get runners to stop running so much but that's like getting a drug addict to stop doing drugs just by saying you should stop Like you need a larger intervention than that. (laughs) Somebody who's used to putting 30 miles down on the pavement every week, you're like, you should lower it to five. And they're like, you should kiss, kiss my ass. And so, you know, but, and I was guilty of trying to push people away from running because we know, you know, you should be fit to run, not run to get fit, but who am I to take away what they love? So program design ultimately is what are the things you need to accept about them and how can you use your toolbox to program the things they're not getting and push the variables that need to be pushed to support their lifestyle and also give them results while incrementally layering in, Hey, we're doing this because it helps this or, Hey, we're going to try something new and it should help you
1: with X. Well, this is actually, it's hilarious that you brought up running cause this kind of goes to the whole point of like the boil people should actually go spend time with people that don't like that shit. But, but TJ, TJ Mims, he, I like, was the like same thing. He dropped a comment, or like, a, he put a quote about someone, and basically that same thing, like, why are you running for fat loss? The fucking people lost it. Well, but part- like, that's their, but that's their teddy bear. Like, you
0: can't attack
1: their soul. Like, so when you attack someone running or their well, yoga and stuff, you
0: literally just like, try to you rip their heart out that and quote, they'll fucking hate you. That quote came out of a guy, um, I can't remember how his name goes, but it's, it's some guy, Cortez, who is in the industry, but James Felke did there, who of course is an endurance guy. And James, like, oh, he he's an alt right troll. And <laughs> I, this, this, guy, this Cortez guy apparently has a reputation for being an unmitigated piece of shit. But I don't normally say stuff like that on the air. Uh, but he does this stuff deliberately to provoke these incredibly strong reactions. But,
1: but like, that's what you—that's what you don't want to
0: do. But like, you don't
1: want to do that as a trainer because like that's like you said. Like, if you do that, you've lost them. Like, who are you to say that? And honestly, like, in what context? But like, you can't go for the thing that they hold near and dear. Like, go throw some music on and do it at the end, like you said. Like, that's that's a huge skill, though, of understanding other people's models and that it's not yours.
0: Agreed. You more or less said something along these lines, I'll kind of crystallize it. You have to build trust with people that you're working with and once you've established that trust over a little while then you can actually massage them away from problem potentially problem behaviors or nutritional strategies. I think this one actually applies almost more to nutrition don't, don't massage than yeah, don't literally massage. Actually, I'm gonna, don't <laughs> let me don't even forget this cuz I walked into a commercial gym and I saw trainers massaging clients on a table. I'm like, I know that's, a scope of, that's a scope of practice issue right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah. But back to this Establishing trust with them. Let's say you got a client. A great example is they're determined to do keto. If you turn around and say, oh, fucking keto is stupid, or let's say they're going to do a carnivore diet, and you just go in there with bombast and tell them why it's wrong, I promise you they're not going to look at you and go, oh, thank you so much for clearing that up for me. I, I'm going to stop now. They're going to look at you, and they're like, now they're going to feel shitty for what they did, because they put effort into trying to learn about this. And they feel They're seeking some sort of validation. They want to be attached to it almost becomes like a religious ideology. It's a sense of belonging to a community when it comes to some of these reli- uh, sorry, these how new- how nutritional life. ideologies. Absolutely. So if you go right for the throat of that, then that's going to fail outright. Instead, build that relationship with them and go, okay, I'm going to be here to support you through this. And as they realize, wait a second, maybe this isn't for me or fuck, this, this fucking sucks. Then you're there going, okay, cool. We tried that. Let's try this. And you can steer them over to something that Well, might simply work for them or they might like more.
2: Yeah. One thing that drives me nuts is when you get a client or a trainer who's like, oh, my clients just don't get me. They don't want to do it. They do it my way. Well, congrats mother. It's called personal training, not professional clients. So like you are a personal trainer. You need to adapt to the person you are training. They do not have to come in with some professional etiquette and be like, well, I'm with my trainer. So anything they say goes that doesn't mean you can't nudge people. It doesn't mean you can't inform them, but like you said, Andrew, you don't go for the jugular on day one. Um, years ago, my fiance and I, who we get married in two days, is we, we, this like relationship thing, counseling, if you will, but we, nothing was wrong. It was just an opportunity to grow, and we learned this thing called a MAGO dialogue, where it's you acknowledge someone else's contribution to a con- conversation or their feelings before giving your own thoughts. So you openly say, Andrew, what I heard you say was, or Dean, what I heard you say, and you create this sort of open acknowledgement that you're actually listening. You're not just waiting for your turn to talk. And especially if you can repeat most of what they said, then when you share your thoughts, you've already gotten under their wall and they're not gonna fight you as hard. So in the case of the Keto client, I have found success because Lord knows I made that, that mistake until... I learned a little bit more about the art of coaching, not training, coaching. And, you know, I would be like, so what I hear you say is you feel that keto is the best diet for you based on your research, based on the success of your friends. Am I hearing you correctly? And then they'll say, yeah, of course. And then I'll say, well, what is it about it that you are most confident you can achieve? Well, you know, I love carbs, so it's gonna be hard, but I think I can do X, Y, Z, and then I just leave it there. Okay. So instead of doing the full blown keto, why don't we focus on that one thing you're most confident in? So maybe it's getting seven servings of vegetables a day versus three or whatever it may be, whatever their personalized behavior. But instead of going right after jugular and be like, the results on keto and fat deprived diets are exactly the same in longitudinal studies. Like we could nerd out and quote all the studies, but they don't care. They just want to be happy
1: and get results. Which is like, this is why we never talk about programming because like at the end of the day for like a lot of these populations, not that it doesn't matter, but it matters a lot less than the other stuff you're talking about. Because if they don't do shit and they don't actually do what you're asking them to do, does it really matter?
2: Yeah. I mean, Dr. Russin's really got it down to a science. Every single person should hinge, push, pull, carry, uh, single leg knee dominant, I think he calls it split squat, uh, and then bilateral knee dominant, and then some okay. level of rotation. It's like... With most populations, if you can hit those, throw in a little accessories, oh, this person wants nicer arms, this person, wa- this person wants a bigger butt, this person wants to be a little faster on the treadmill, you, you then add those things, but you hit the core functions of human anatomy and physiology, and then you dot in the things that make them happy.
1: And at some point, they will care. Like, not to say that they don't care, but they won't care about the numbers, but when they do, then you have your in. And that, usually a good workload or a good relationship is a backdoor... To the stuff that you wanna do anyways. Because yeah. they will at some point buy in to, to that. The yeah, perfect example is a client who comes to you
2: injured, right? And maybe they had a trainer before that, that babied them. I definitely have a client in my mind right now while I was at Equinox that his previous trainer, smart as can be, she was a rock star, but she definitely had a overly functional, well, if you're not don't have all this rotation, she'll be really yep. be lifting and too granular of an approach. And meanwhile, he's gaining body fat around his midsection. He feels lazy and sluggish. I looked at him. I'm like, yeah, you're definitely still fighting that hip extension a little bit, but we can work on that. Within a couple of months, he was trap bar deadlifting, eventually sumo deadlifting, and he's in his 60s. Now, I'm not sitting here trying to you know be like, all right, you're going to follow Greg Robbins' program, right? Or we're going to take it right out of Greg Knuckles' book and just load the crap out of you. But I took this guy from injured – to training hard, but the secret wasn't just the program design. It was, okay, he's coming from a place where he's been told he's broken. He's invested thousands in physical therapy. If I tell him on day one, we're going to deadlift, even if I know that deadlifts can be therapeutic, he's going to fight me. He's going to lock up. He's going to have a fear response, and we're not going to get anywhere. So then you start with a bridge and some basic, boring, corrective work, and you eventually open open them up, just like opening a pallet at a restaurant. Right. Like you go
1: somewhere, you're like, I've never had this. You try it. You're like, eh, I here's can do a, this. Here's another end of it. Cause we, we totally are highlighting the fact that programming doesn't matter. At what point is programming beneficial to let's just say the non boil people, just cause that's the model we use. Like at what point is it helpful to the person that's sitting in the commercial gym and that doesn't know all this shit? Like why should they care? Cause we just basically told them it doesn't fucking matter. But like, why does it matter? I think when your goals get more
2: specific, the program has to get more specific, right? So if you're just that person who's, I want to lose a few pounds, I want to keep up with my kids, I don't want to feel like a, a a bump on a log anymore, and I'm tired of hurting, we can kind of cover all the bases and all exercise is kind of therapeutic and, and beneficial and corrective in some nature. But if you're like, I really want to see a bigger bench press or... You know, I like that guy over there. He's always deadlifting heavy. I want to do that. Okay, now we got to get into the specifics. You can't expect to make it to Major League Baseball, and then you go outside and shoot hoops every day. Like, we need to start getting into the specifics. And I think the secret for a long career in fitness is let the clients breach that conversation with you I mean, this is a quick aside, but it's like, even with client homework, I used to be like, Hey, thanks for signing up. You know, I'm going to take great care of you. Here's your homework on the days you don't see me. And then three weeks later, I'm like, how are those workouts going that I gave you? Oh, (laughs) I haven't done any of them. And you're like, okay, they're not there yet. They're not ready for that commitment. But now I'll write them when I write their program. I'm like, what are some good off day work? And then I just wait. And then that client's like, Hey, you know, like this, it's actually really relevant with this weekend. I'm missing. Uh, two sessions tomorrow. Hey, what can I do while you're away? I want you to focus on your wedding. What can I do? Awesome. I already had homework for you. I was just waiting for you to ask. I gave it to her. She's like, Oh my God, I know all these exercises. I can totally do this. And so it's like, let the client breach when they need more specificity instead of being like,
1: I am the king of deadlifts and thou shalt sumo or else. Just and create fake weddings every weekend. Always fake weddings. <laughs> This, feel uh, bad.
0: <laughs> this You mentioned periodization just in passing a little while ago, and I think it's also worth noting this too. And I, I think people come at this with the idea that there are some people come from more of the strength conditioning side who work with gen pop people. They feel like they have to periodize everybody. And I like to shoot that one down pretty hard. It's good to know a lot about periodization, but when you're dealing with general population clients, periodization is more presented as sort of a sales thing in the commercial gym setting that it actually has anything to do with how you will deal with a client. If you think that clients are going to be 100% adherent to your nuts, that is actually pretty rare. And if you think that life goes according to a plan or they show up one day, shit, I had a day on, shit, what was it? It was Tuesday. And I think my first client showed up a little late because he had slept his bed is a little too soft, his lower back was all jacked up and he was having radiating pain down his hamstrings and up to his back. So we did some light stuff and I put him ready with the physio we have on site and he felt better. One of my guys didn't show up and let me know because he had twisted his neck and you know when you pull a trap and you can't turn your head and it sucks to drive. So he'd done that. So he didn't even come in that day. Another girl was a little stressed out about, you know, just weak stuff on one side that she'd been seeing her physiotherapist for. So if I created this put in a ton of work in this elaborate, specific plan, and here's a weight we're gonna use for every single client, every single day. More than half of the time, over the course of however many years I've been training, uh, I wouldn't even get to use half or most of that stuff. It, I think yeah. it's it doesn't mean going unprepared and don't have program templates and know exactly what you want to do with a client. But if you sit down and you load up a spreadsheet, you spend three hours a day doing this kind of stuff, you're doing a lot of unnecessary work. 100%. But as a trainer, you know, especially if you're a trainer trying to earn a good income and work with more people, help more people, being efficient with what you're doing for these people is really critical too. And I just feel like sometimes trainers spend a lot of time periodizing when they don't fucking need to. And most general population clients will never care about periodization. They just don't even give a shit about
2: it. I think at its core, the one thing a personal trainer who isn't working with a specific population or highly trainable populations with specific goals is your job is to periodize in a way that you don't really bump into the law of accommodation. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you spent 8 weeks in that 8 to 12 rep range, maybe let's switch it up in terms of load representation in the program. But beyond that, you don't have to overwave periodization or you don't have to overthink it, but really you just want to make sure that your client doesn't run into both a psychological or physiological wall because they've done the same crap for 14 weeks straight.
1: And that is, honestly, that is Boyle's. I think in one point of his book, he's like, someone asked me the specifics of why 12 over 15. He's like, I don't know. We just do 10s, then 12s, then 15s. And you just add weight. He's like, it doesn't yeah. have to be so fucking crazy. He's yeah. like, we don't overthink it too much either. Yeah, I
2: I actually, I'm of the camp and I don't know how many people are in it with me. I don't care about reps because in a training session, in a training session that I'm present for, if I'm paying attention and I know your weight ratios and I get your strength mostly mapped out, I want you to land in a range. And it's something that I remember Todd Bumgunner talked about in one of his uh, podcasts or maybe it was a podcast or a presentation. I can't remember now, but he was like, what's the difference between five, six, and seven? Physiologically speaking, not much. So if I give you a weight and you get seven and it's a clean seven, sweet. If I want you closer to five, I'll add weight on the next set. But living on this like specific hard number of like the only way you're gonna get results is if you do 12. It's like, there's
0: no data to support eight, 10, 12. Um, I agree with what you're saying about rep ranges. It's funny because like I put up a post yesterday. Well, counting reps. I I think some people misinterpreted what I was saying and, and one guy got in there and I mean, I've never interacted with him before. He's just blunt and direct and negative. And I'm just like, this is not constructive. But I kind of shot down the fact that, you know what? You've never contributed anything positive on my page. I didn't even know we were friends. I don't even really know who he is. <laughs> and then he just looked and I'm like, what the fuck? It's not like, it's my like, that's, that's a pet peeve of mine, actually. Is you haven't gone in and interacted constructively, consistently, and participated in conversation. You don't exactly have the right, or it shows that you're kind of a shithead. That uh, if you just go in and like jump in on something negative, and I've I've seen that with a few people, but no, I, I agree with you. Is I think rep ranges are what you're targeting. The specifics of that post was I every once in a while, some trainer that I know will usually come in and say, "Well, I don't count reps because you know, the client has to count the reps because I'm busy doing this and this and this and this. And I'm watching your form and blah." It's above. like, like no, nah. I I had this conversation quite recently. She doesn't count reps. I want to know what the rep range of clients in for the reasons we talked about. But I think especially the message we're sending to newer upper and coming trainers is, you know what trainers, you guys can count your reps just fine. Know where your rep range is of your client and do all these other things. You're being fucking lazy and you're making excuses for it. And that is what I call it. Sh- I'm, in, I'm in his camp.
1: I just, I do density training at yeah. a timer. And then like we do these things. And I just had this conversation with my group. My group yesterday was like, Like oh we're oh I end up doing more weight like why are we doing it this way I'm like because it all regulates itself the days you feel good they end up doing way more I'm just looking for a certain intensity like obviously I have a a set range but it doesn't matter and when you have time it literally doesn't matter because the people who don't work hard end up working more and the people who work hard just work hard well that applies and and then they self limit too because it's it's self regulating yeah they like and they limit themselves and the people that literally sandbag it just end up doing more. it's the best thing ever well from a,
2: a program design perspective density is really a personal trainer's best friend right so yeah. you whether you sell 30 45 60 minute sessions you have a fixed amount of time with a client right it's not just this well we're we'll, we're done when we're done and so if it's like okay the average client is two or three minutes late they got to warm up a little bit so okay i'm down if i have a 60 minute session i'm down to 50 and exactly. i'm going to want to bring them down a little at the end. So I got
1: like 45 minutes of sweet spot.
2: So can well, I? Time- periodization
1: isn't your friend. Like, so, yeah. so like, because like you got to do four sets at 87%, like, like you said, in that set of time, it ain't fucking happening. No, it's not. Like, it's not. And especially and then, because they're like, I have to hit this weight. So they got to be prepared and all this stuff. it ends up taking 30 minutes to do one set.
2: Yeah, and, and I'm, one of my pet peeves in a commercial gym is when you see somebody who's super into powerlifting and, like, more power to them. Yeah. I'm definitely – I'm a decently strong guy, but you'll never see me post some weight that, you know, is impressive. Uh, I learned from studying powerlifting and and messing around in the ones and twos. But if, you, if you're working with a general pop client and you're like, okay, today we're going to just train your 98% deadlift – and all they really want to do is get a little bit more in shape and they haven't expressed to you that they want to hit the platform. You're like, okay, so we are going to foam roll. We're going to deadlift and then we're going to sit and talk about what you did wrong in your deadlift until you foam roll and then deadlift again. And you're like, that is a horrible use of a paid training session for someone who hasn't expressed an innate desire to
1: live at the peak lifts. We won't even go there because that's a whole fucking podcast. It'll- oh, I
0: know. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> that's that is like, I'll, 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 I'll summarize it and we're going to move on. About coaches who are trying to fit the clients to what they like and their biases and their philosophies versus going to where the client is and what they want. All right. Next question. <laughs> He's, <be> <laughs> okay, we talked about group fitness. So you're an advocate of group fitness. You
1: already mentioned that for most populations. What are your thoughts behind the benefits for the client and some of the reasons why it's well, it's a great business model for coaches or just an option?
2: I'll start with coaches. So... As a personal trainer, not everyone's an extrovert, right? Like, you know, you look at a guy like Tony G, who, Tony Janelcore, who is a self-proclaimed introvert. He'll tell the world. Um, Ironically, he's becoming more and more of an extrovert the bigger he gets, but he's still an introvert. But nonetheless, you know, maybe he doesn't flourish with 40 people and music in the background. Maybe not. I've never worked with him directly, but I'm just using him as an example. But if you have an extroverted bone in your body, and you like music, you like people, and you like controlling a space. Group fitness is an awesome business builder. It's a great reputation builder, and it really works as a client funnel, especially when you're in a commercial gym. Uh, I would, if I lost a client or two at Equinox, I would say something at the beginning of my next class, be like you know, thank you guys for coming. You guys are rock stars. Just so you know, my 8am on Tuesdays is open. If you want to get a little bit more one-on-one attention and without fail, you know, maybe not the first time, but within a week, someone would be like, Hey, is that 8am still available? Boom. I didn't have to go bug bug membership. I didn't have to go walk around the floor for 20 minutes. I already had an audience of 30 to 40 people who like my personality, like my coaching style, mostly like my programming. Maybe they don't know my one-on-one style of programming, but they like what I do in the group. And so they're already bought in. So if really the sales already made, all I just got to do is present them the options and show the the TLC that a one-on-one session has versus 30 people in a room. But the key is because I am an advocate of group fitness you have to you have to elevate it when you go into a class and you just see somebody getting burpeed to death or it's squats followed by lunges followed by deadlifts followed by squats followed by butt lifts followed by this and you're just like, "Oh my God, can you let their legs rest for two seconds? There is definitely an ugly underside of group fitness because it doesn't have the same barrier to entry you know all you have to do is have some pretty, I don't want to call them a weekend cert, but a pretty easy to obtain weekend type certification. You have to have a good personality and some level of following and you can have a class. But if you do it right as a personal trainer and you bring in principles from the strength floor, you know, I'd have a group of 40 people doing half kneeling overhead presses or uh, tall kneeling chops, and then they do squat hops, right? So it's like ebbing and flowing between very structural strength and conditioning and the the fun stuff that people come to expect from that environment. And if you do it right, you have built yourself a funnel that will continue to refill itself because people just show up and you will always have new leads that could go into your one-on-one business. I saw
1: some, uh, it's funny we're talking about group fitness because I was like naive to like what the hell it was because I had this picture in my head of like, a gym and like a bunch of like old ladies doing shitty squats. But someone like followed me on Instagram locally and I went and like looked at her page and she was doing the the good life like group fitness. I'm like, holy shit, like they're super extroverted. I could not do that. So yeah. I mean if you have the personality, like you could definitely make them sweet. If that makes yeah. sense. Like, exactly what you're saying. You can put strength principles on it and it's like they just have music and shit. I'm like, oh that would kind of be fun.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I excelled in that space and still do. I I teach a couple of classes here and there at my new location uh, because I'm kind of rebuilding their program. But I bring legit training knowledge because I am a personal trainer, strength coach. I study this. This is my life, my life's work. And then I mix in the fun side of my actual personality. I love EDM and hip hop and heavy metal. And I love you know i'm a little bit corny i love to go right into an exercise right when a beat drops or the heavy metal guitar riff hits and it's like when you can time it just right especially in like a spin format you get immediate buy-in and everybody
1: thinks you're god this is actually a good question for you since you like the shit is um (laughs) my, my, my thoughts on it is like if you run a good group class like i was trying to evaluate this in my head like how would you do it you almost have to have that training experience to understand what needs to happen and how to be concise with your words to make Absolutely the right, right. cues. Like, and that would be a hard thing to do without training, if that makes sense. Absolutely.
2: You are external cueing out the wazoo because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is stop the class and be like, guys, this is your adductor complex. I need you to dial in, meaning big toe, pinky toe, heel, turn the floor, right? Like In an ideal world, we could teach them all that. they would be great. But you got to say something like, fire your inner thighs, close your thigh gap. Or when I wanted them to contract their glutes, I'd say something like, put a capital one card in your back pocket, squeeze your glutes, what's in your wallet, right? It's, it's resonating images for them. Or I know deep, <laughs> Somerset had said in one of his blogs, "I want you to crack a diamond with yeah. your glutes." Is that my, yours, Andrew?
0: No, my, <laughs> my, no, no. We had we had to drop the the inside joke. We hadn't said Dean's name yet, and you did it without yeah. us having conjured uh, up. So my, mine is no mine worries. is
1: super inappropriate. Um, don't let okay, in, don't, don't let Bubba in in jail. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, like, I've, I like. I've made jail like jail showers <clears throat> and that experience references to yeah. too. So, so funny I story. Live, I live in a pretty progressive
1: city. I can't. I can't do that. Oh, I can't, I can't funny do that story. Around. He may have been on the last podcast I did. Um, we were coaching youth basketball, like a clinic. They had like this basketball camp, and um, my business partner and I and another guy were running the strength part. <laughs> and he used don't let Bubba in to a bunch of kids from 12 to 16 years old and there was parents in there and I was like my jaw fucking dropped and then afterwards I'm like man what the fuck he's like what's wrong with that I'm like cause he's, this was in like a school setting and I'm like are you? I used to be a teacher I'm like are you fucking kidding me like you could get sued yeah and it was yeah. fine but I we were just like holy fuck we have to keep him under wraps
2: yeah i mean when he first said that it probably got so quiet you could have heard a mouse fart like, no they, they just, laughed
1: <laughs> this is why it was bad they, they got it because they're 12 to 15 year old kids and they were losing their fucking minds i'm like they're gonna tell their parents like because they actually know what that means and they probably gonna yeah. use it again for the rest of their lives and oh my god <laughs> yeah But yeah, I mean, to get back to it, it's just coaching people,
2: uh, to get the job done, but then it comes into programming, simpler exercises, right? You're usually using dumbbells, gliders, cardio steps, body weight type stuff. So it's, you know, the big thing that I teach other group instructors is never mix intensity and complexity. And so good strength coaches know that, right? I can't ask you to do a heavy lift and also add two or three, you know, a tertiary action to it, but you know. I would kind of program my class where a very thoughtful warm-up, everything from hip ninety nineties, 90s world's greatest hip stretch, generalized central nervous system prep, and then all the heavy and complex work is in the first 20 minutes, 15 minutes really. And it's still moving at a group fitness pace, but everything that is heavy and complex happens early. And then we do, like, a little cardio round. Then you do some core, and then you do another cardio round. And then I had something I called the big finish, which was almost always body weight only. Uh, it was the climax. Uh, everybody left drenched. Yes. stop
0: with the story. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I see you guys. See, see, our listeners can't see that I see you and you see me, so I'm playing off y'all's face. But, you know,
1: I would just
0: <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Deep just giggle like a school girl. Oh I mean, yeah, that's The that big jazz. finish
1: is going off her face and that's not appropriate.
2: <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I just get real simple with the exercises like basic push-ups, basic squats, jumping jacks, you name it. And then we're just driving aerobic metabolism at that point. And people ate it up because they got we were able to hit every nail on the head and they were happy, which leads to that first part of your question that I haven't answered yet is why should so many people do it? And the answer is we shouldn't be striving for perfect as trainers. In an ideal world, like I said, I'd have that men in black thing. I could just be like, you should deadlift more and front squat and definitely do some presses in rows. But they're going to do what they want to do. And so we should never get in a client's way if they want to take a group format. Uh, and ultimately, you know, there is so much data out there on joining communities and how communities can inspire us. And so if you have a person who works out zero days a week, And if they join this group class, even if it isn't bustling with the top end physiology, even if the person teaching it isn't an industry expert, but they're, you know, better than the participant and they join this community of people who say, Hey, we also walk on Saturdays. Hey, we like to ride bikes or take this spin class on Thursdays. You should join. You take a person who is otherwise afraid of the gym environment and you suddenly give them a safe community driven space to get engaged. And then you layer on, just like with the personal training client, you don't go right for the jugular. We say, okay, now that you've accomplished this, let's do this. And then it's, it's stacking. But I think as trainers, we sometimes forget that for better or for worse, a lot of this came easy to us. We were athletes before. Not all of us. There were definitely people who had to earn it the hard way, but we were athletes. We were interested in exercise. We enjoy the pain a little bit. We have that slightly sadistic, like, give me more mentality. Most people don't. Most people do not want to be uncomfortable. And so if I have a client or I have somebody say, Hey, what do you think of this class? Hey, it's great. It may not do everything you want, but if you think you can go on a regular basis, by all means, you should go.
1: Yeah. It's better than nothing. And another thing, um, which I didn't highlight before, even on the trainer perspective of doing this, it'll allow you to see your blind spots as a trainer because the stuff that works when you explain things super thoroughly don't work in those settings, but that you work the other way around. If you learn how to streamline your coaching, it does help in your personal training to make things more effective. Oh, 100% because, you know, you don't want to be
2: talking while somebody's working, right? So you don't need to be you don't want to be over explaining your cue. If you can get down to, you know, chest up, hips down, drive, awesome. Like, like I'd even say that's too wordy. So like up back up back down is one mm-hmm. I use for deadlifts a lot is uh, up is the chest, back is the hips, down is the feet, right? And up back down go. And so they know what that means at some point. And so it sounds like I'm giving the Konami code a little bit, but what I'm really doing is trying to simplify the message from my mouth so they can focus on working because we've all been there where someone's talking to you or they're cueing you and you're trying to do and think and feel and hear. And it's just too much, too much sensory overload. And
0: usually the doing suffers.
1: Yeah. And you want to tell them to shut up. (laughs)
0: We seriously, yeah. We should highlight the book that you wrote and has been circulating amongst our industry. So let's shout that out. And then I want to see if there's anything you've read that has influenced you a lot because you're clearly well read, well versed in a lot of different stuff within and outside of you know personal training. So start with your book. All right. So I wrote Day by Day: The Personal Trainers Blueprint to Achieving Ultimate
2: Success uh, because. I love sort of the daily meditation books. I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday's Daily Stoic. Now, that's on a more spiritual, holistic level. And one day I was flipping through and I was just like, what if there was something for personal trainers and fitness professionals to look at that covered all the topics of the day-by-day grind? There are tons of books on program design, tons on strength and theory, right? Like, we could read Mel Siff. You could read Nick Tumanilo. Like, there's a million books no one's really written about like the day by day grind. One of the tips in there is the, the very first tip in the book is someone is always watching and it doesn't matter if you're training out of someone's apartment gym and there's two guys on the treadmill or you're at a, com- especially at a commercial facility. There is someone with their eyes on you. So how is your body postured? What is your body language like? Because we tend to think we get in these bubbles with our clients and we're like, oh, I'm good. They like me. I can lay like this. But the person watching is like, I'd never work with that guy. Uh, Another tip is, you know, after a complimentary session, always send a thorough email or make a call and recap it because they don't know what just happened to them. And if you could say, hey, what we did was this and we did it for that. And this is why it works to your goals you're going to increase your conversion percentage because you're showing that next level of care that other people in your field aren't. Um, you know, I dispel some myths, the idea that like with keto, that cutting carbs is the only way to burn fat or, um, that heavy lifting, uh, always builds muscle. And I was, I pointed to even in the book, I reference how Eric Cressy is insanely strong at a deadlift, but he doesn't look like a behemoth who would deadlift 600 pounds. But then you watch him and you're like animal, um, (laughs) and then the last chapter, the one I'm most proud of is taking care of yourself. And so the entire, the entire month of December is dedicated to the things we have to do to refill our tank as a person who has put in almost 20,000 hours of training sessions and, and beyond, as I said earlier, uh, there have been more times than I can count that I burnt out and was ready to just write the two weeks and take that salary job, as you said, because you know, there, I think there's, three reasons a trainer would leave the industry. One is burnt out. You just can't do it anymore. You're just tired of dealing with other people's problems and being on your feet all day. Two, you're not making good money. So here you are working all the time and you can't pay your bills. And three, the, the idea of people and coaching people isn't as alluring as you thought it was from the outside looking in. So some people are like, Oh, I'm all about it. And then they do it. And they're like, "Mm, not my speed. Some people get tired. Some people have to leave for adult reasons. And so if we take care of ourselves, so one of the things is read fiction, right? You asked me some of the things I read, like, don't just read nonfiction. Don't just try to fill your, your analytical brain and your business brain and your training brain, like grab Ernest Hemingway, grab the great Gatsby. I actually just finished reading the great Gatsby again, and I haven't read it since I was a teenager, but it was amazing to reinterpret so many of the things that my teenage mind thought it meant one thing, but here I am on the whole other side of life. And I'm like, man, this guy really had some insecurities. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like, like I identified with him when I was a teenager. I was like, hell yeah, I want to be at the rich house. Like I want all the fun parties. And now I'm like, man, this guy just needs to be happy with what he's got and not, <laughs> not assume that money is the cure. Cause as we know, the end of great Gatsby, but nonetheless, um, you know, the book is, is a daily, I don't want to call it a meditation, but it's, it's lessons that I've learned through experience, through failure, uh, through other people's teaching, I've had a lot of amazing mentors. Uh, guys like Pete McCall, Nick Tunello have invested time in me. Guys like Tony General Core, Dean have given me the opportunity to write on their sites. Uh, they've they've allowed me to grow, uh, and so they've taught me things along the way too. And I just want one centralized place where a trainer could say, if I read one page a day, I will be a better trainer than I was this year. When I get to this point next year,
0: so that was the goal. I noticed you mentioned Hemingway. So one of the things that's impressed me is you're really well versed in the people of our industry. So when I think Hemingway and reading and all this sort of stuff, that's obviously a John Romanello thing because he loves Hemingway. So I figured that was probably a reference to that. So I'm just really impressed with just how much, even as busy as you've been, as many things you've been involved in, how knowledgeable you are about our industry and its people. And that's something that I take a great deal of pride in. And I think that kind of shows to our podcast. So that that's pretty cool and i that recommendation has come up before with with john i know i've heard jordan say it on other podcasts and a few other people about like you said not just stuffing in business stuff but being uh, diverse in your interest your knowledge base you did mention that during the podcast earlier and for the specific purpose of having stuff to talk to with your clients not being a robot not just being about program design but actually being able to carry on a diverse array of conversations with people who come from very different walks of life. Because, again, if you're a trainer who works with varied people, they have varied interests. And mm-hmm. something I believe very strongly in is your relationship with them is part of what keeps them coming back and keeps them in the gym. And if anyone thinks that's well, you're manipulating them, you're completely misguided. Because, first of all, hopefully the interactions are very genuine. I enjoy my clients so. It's such a rewarding thing to come in and actually hang out with these people and get paid to do it. It's great. But it's... I sort of lost that train of thought there for a second. I apologize. He likes Uh, reading. (laughs) (laughs) If you're able to keep your clients in the gym... (laughs) I like words. I like words. If you're able to keep your people in the gym, that means that day, day over day, week over week, they're going to get a little closer to their goals. It means that you have a consistent, paying client, someone who's going to refer business to you. You're doing them... For them, what's in their best interest is to get them into this long-term habit and lifestyle that maybe they stay with you because they just evaluate the experience and they, they need the accountability. But maybe you set them up so that way it becomes such a key part of their ongoing life that they can do it independently because it's now part of who they are. So the your relationship drives that over the long term. I
2: think it was John Goodman who said this was people hire the trainer, but eventually keep paying for the person. Right. Um, And I had to learn that quickly because being in DC, we're again, a a fluent market, an educated market. So, you know, I'd have some new trainers at Equinox come up to me like, you know, you always have great relationships with your client. I was like, do you read the newspaper? No, I hate the newspaper. Well at least read a couple pages or have an idea of what the headlines are because they care. Like, this is an educated, informed city. This is not the type of place where people are surprised by the news. Um, You know, read fiction, do things that diversify uh, your knowledge and skill set. Because people want to be surrounded by interesting people, right? Like, we've all been to a cocktail party or a happy hour, and the person's like, you know, I do this, and it's great. And you're like, and? And there is no end. You're like, that is you. You are an analyst. You are a trainer. You are this. And that's fine. You are uh, an expert. But at least when it comes to your personality and culture, being able to speak to remembering the streets of Barcelona and being able to talk about, you know, the... A political crisis in a foreign nation, you don't have to be an expert on it, but just showing that you have some level of worldliness, people will be like, wow, that's a cool dude or a cool chick. And I want to be around them. Oh, by the way, they're also
1: the best trainer I've ever met. And they help me every time I'm with them. Well, even just for networking purposes, we talk about conferences and whatever, continuing education. If you show up those things bland, you, you get a lot less out of them as opposed to meeting people and being interesting. Cause that's usually how people gravitate towards that. They
2: don't
0: gravitate towards the guy who's exactly the same as everyone else there.
2: Yeah, and then from the networking perspective, and this happens, you know, on a small scale, other places, but you know, I've helped clients meet each other. And then they've forged business deals worth millions where they were working out maybe two hours apart. So they never really crossed each other in the locker room. They knew who each other were because they were at big firms or big account places. And they had just never been in the same room. And then they'd be like, who else do you train here? And I'd say a couple of names, you train so-and-so I'd be like, why you want to meet? Oh my God, I've been trying to meet him for years. And then I had a breakfast one day. I was like, okay, I have 8am off. He trains at seven. He trains at nine. I'll have breakfast right in the middle. And I introduced them. And by the end, I walked away, went back to the training floor. And within a year, they had a business partnership between their two firms. And so, you know, that's the other thats the other side of being a trainer is just like we can tend to look at our clients and what they can do for us. But also, like, if you have something in your back pocket, be the key holder. So, Andrew, you asked about other books that influenced me. I would argue the number one book in my life that was a absolute shock point was never eat alone by Keith Ferrazzi and the idea that networking is not a dirty word. And that if you really want to get ahead do for other people without asking for anything, always connect, always reach out to people, always keep your network alive and do so much for others that when an opportunity presents itself, you're the first person on their mind. So there is a little bit of self-serving in there and that's okay. You can be for others and for yourself at the same time. And so that book without a doubt made me think like, man, I really want to build a network of people who rely on me. Like, I've helped clients. I know Dan John talked about this. He's like, you know, if your clients don't have a good dentist, help find them a dentist, you know, like have a veterinarian you trust, like be that person that if they ask you a question, you can send them on their way and it's a very positive interaction. Yeah.
0: I've trained a dentist, my dentist for years. I've sent other clients to him. I've trained my realtor for years. I've sent other clients to her. There's tons of examples of this stuff. So yeah, you can create value in other people's lives. And if you're supporting someone else's business, guess what? They're much more likely to give you a referral business and stick around and continue to support you. Plus you're putting money in their pocket that helps them continue to afford working with you right?
2: Isn't it amazing how we can get, we could, we could have a podcast and just argue about periodization and program design theory, and we could spend six hours. But what this hour just really came down to is being a great personal trainer is about being a great person who trains.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Not an asshole. Let's leave it at that, but we've got to make sure people know where to find you. Yeah. What's the, what's the best place to find you? Um, Instagram, where do you write? So-
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna own it. My Instagram is 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 weak sauce right now. My, I think my <laughs> last five posts have been Tomorrowland and my fiance, and maybe one workout. Uh, I'll get back to that. Uh, my website is the best, Kevin MullinsFitness.com. I post hyperlinks to anything else I write. Uh, I write a lot for John Goodman on the Personal Trainer Development Center. I have a couple more articles coming out on C Nation over the next couple of months after editing. Um, and I will be presenting at a variety of NSCA conferences, SCW Mania, and then possibly IDEA here on the East Coast. Uh, I'm waiting back to see if I got in. They're, they haven't said yes or no yet. I've
0: been really impressed with just, you know, not just the knowledge base, but also I said this about Jade Tata in his podcast. Uh, Jade was just magic with language and, and human interaction, but I can see why you've been really successful because if anybody listening, just if you go back and, and just Mentally process how you speak, how you um, put words together, and how you form relationships just through the way you speak. I'm sorry, and I'm doing a terrible job with this all of a sudden. That's some little trailer yeah, parkour shit, right? <laughs> there. Yeah, that's right. some trailer parkour shit. Uh, see, just brain is not functioning yet today. But anyway, so I'm impressed with certainly, and I hope that everybody pays attention to this sort of stuff and why this sort of thing matters when you're dealing with well, other humans because we don't personal train computers, we personal train people.
2: Absolutely, and if I can have a parting message, one thank you for that. I take a lot of pride in being an intellectual who also works out, um, and and I put a lot, way more thought into things than my therapist thinks I should. But uh, <laughs> the, the the lasting message is if I can influence our industry in any way, is be the type of trainer who goes wide before worrying about going deep. Learn a lot about a lot. Don't be afraid to be a jack of all trades for a little while, then go. Find- find your niche but learn what's out there in all different disciplines experience things if somebody says hey i want to build a home gym do you know anything about equipment just say yes get on gym source or whatever website and price it out for them and help them do it so that you learn more about the price of equipment and whatever it is and so a lot of my experiences have been things that i said yes to that i was woefully unprepared but i got to work i learned and came out the other side with a new experience and knowledge base to pull off of so
0: yeah go wide then go deep well thanks again kevin for being on here we appreciate it. if you're someone who has just found us for the first time because you follow kevin well we've mentioned a lot of names in this that uh, you know tony general Corps has been on our podcast recently dean somerset's been on a number of times nick Tumanello has been on in the past and these are a lot of really great people. So if you scroll through a lot of our guest lists, you're going to find a lot of the industries who's who. You may find some stuff that you really enjoy. And for our ongoing long-term listeners, guys, thanks again for tuning in. I really hope you go and check Kevin out. Uh, he's someone I've been impressed with since he sort of caught onto my radar. Check out his book. And, uh, and thanks again for tuning in. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: Shut up and sit down.